How do you know that you are not the blind leading the blind? How do you know? Jesus said, it's the only statement he ever made about hermeneutics. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, if the light in, in of your mind is, is bright, then blessed are you. But if you think the light in you is light and it's really darkness, you're screwed. Myths and Parables Today on In the Shadow of the Cross. to another episode of In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and I'm here once again with my friends Jim Durkin. Hello. And Minnie the Moocher, Michael Harden. Yeah, Galloway. <laughs> once again, changing his name when he signs in. <laughs> Welcome, guys. We thought it's been a little while since we've engaged in a, a theological discussion. We thought it'd be fun to jump back into the realm of theology. And, and today we thought we would talk about when we look at the scriptures, especially the Genesis narrative, what is myth and what is historical? Uh, I hear a lot of discussion on these things. Do we really all have to be in complete agreement on every single thing, you know, that we read? Um, you know, why does that become such a threat? But but it's kind of interesting, you know, when, when we talk about what is historical, what is myth? When we, when we look into the Genesis narrative, I don't want to just dive into this. I would actually, on my own, I would like to bring Michael in on this. What are we talking about when we talk about what is myth and what is historical? What we're asking is, did this happen within space, time, and history? Or is this a, a human projection of how they understood other cataclysmic types of events? So this only be- became an issue in the um, 19... Well, it be- became the issue in the 19th century with Darwin when um, the theory of evolution, you know, which is very different than the Genesis narrative. If you read the Genesis narrative, literally, and when I refer to Genesis narrative today, um, I will also also use the term Genesis myth, Genesis story, but I have a very specific definition of myth. It's probably not what most people use. And second, um, we, we have to acknowledge that these texts um, with their gardens and trees and talking snakes and civilizations that spring out of nowhere and these kinds of things. We have to acknowledge that these stories are origin stories. They're trying to tell us something about the origin of, and in this case, uh, it would be the um, Jewish people because the book of Genesis goes through chapter 50, right? But it's also telling us about the origins of the of of creation as as we know it. Is it so? The first question that has to be resolved is: Is Genesis one scientific? There will be those Henry Morris fans and Creation Institute fans that will want to defend you know every last little word in that text as literal. And I find those kinds of apologetics to be cheap and frankly um, useless. People then say, well, if it didn't happen, then the Bible's lying. No, 
it just didn't happen the way your interpreter wants it to happen. It, it, there, there's something else happening here in these narratives. So what is going on? Well, first of all, we have to start off with the fact that there are two creation narratives in the Bible. There is actually three, yep. uh, but one's in the New mm-hmm. Testament. It, it, you know, what's interesting is I remember in, in college biology, that was one of the things the teachers always loved to point out for, you know, because they always had the creationists who would yeah. get into scuffles with them. And they always pointed out that there are the two in Genesis, the two creative narratives. Yeah. So go, go ahead on, on what, yeah. you, were, what so, you were So sharing. we have to acknowledge Genesis 1 through 11 is, is two distinct narratives, the Elohist narrative and the Yahweh's narrative. They are distinct and that they have been uh, brought together and commingled by a third editor, and then they have been polished by a fourth editor. That's just the simple documentary hypothesis approach to this whole thing. It's easy. I mean, it's not complicated. Okay, so you have two narratives. You have someone that brings those narratives together, and then you have someone that kind of polishes over and, and creates this structure that starts within the beginning and ends with the scattering of the human species on the face of the earth. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, we want to follow Margaret Barker and John, um, oh, John, I apologize, can't remember your life, Walton, I believe. We want to recognize that the first creation narrative, which is Genesis chapter 1 going through chapter 2, verse 4, that first creation narrative, it structures creation like a temple. And this would make oh, interesting. Yes. So from a Jewish mindset, each day represents a layer as you move more and more toward the inner part of the temple. And at the inner part of that temple of, of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 is the human couple, the human relationship. The human relationship made in the image of the divine relationship. And the first narrative ends after seven days god says this worked out just beautifully i love it and uh the end right the second creation narrative is a bit different in its in its uh what happens first what happens second okay no no big deal whatever and it has a uh, a god now um who is going to create a problem He's got a garden, and he's going to introduce free will agency. Uh, He's going to introduce uh, the possibility of testing or temptation. So this God is a little different than the God of the first narrative, right? The interesting thing about the second creation narrative is it goes from day one through day six, the creation of the human, and it never gets to day seven. Oh, interesting. Genesis, from from the second creation narrative, we're still in day six. But the early church would reinterpret this and say, no, the the old creation ended with Jesus on the cross. That's the Yohanine. It is finished. Creation is finished. The true human has been created. That's number one. They would see... Um, that Jesus was the one through whom all things were created. They would have a very different approach to creation than either of the first two narratives. Okay, so We have three narratives. We have the, the Christian creation narrative in the New Testament, and then we have the two Jewish narratives. Now, the rabbis, they're fun. If you ever get a chance to read the ancient rabbis on these texts, they're uh, 
they're just an absolute gas. Look, it's seeing the things that they, they thought they saw in the text, you know. So when I read these texts, I, I want to not ask the scientific question. That's a boring question to me. I'm not even interested in the historical question. That, to me, is a moot question. It doesn't, you can't resolve anything, you know. Did they find Noah's Ark? Well, they found a boat, but, you know, is it Noah's Ark? Who knows, you know. Well, they find a grave up there with the name Noah written on it, you know, builder of the ark. Okay, all right, all right. It's like, like, seriously, you know, it's like looking for Atlantis. Um, I'm not saying Atlantis didn't exist. I'm just saying it's like looking for it. At any rate, I'm looking at these texts, and I want to read them anthropologically. I want to ask, what, what are these texts revealing about us as human beings? So first, I separate off the first creation. of The first creation narrative is not protology, Pro- protology being the study of the origins of something, right? The first creation narrative is actually eschatology. It tells us that what God creates turns out just fine because it is God who creates it. That whole narrative is, is, the Bible starts, God is light. And then God, there's no darkness at all. And what God does is good because it's about to spend the rest of its time telling us a different side of the narrative, the bloody side of the narrative, the violent side of the narrative, you know. But that first creation narrative, if you if you read it, you're getting the last chapter first. In the second creation narrative, we have this garden. And in this garden, we have a male and a female and a talking snake and a tree and um, the violation of a commandment. Well, you know, if you want to believe in a literal talking snake, feel free. I've never seen a talking snake. I am sorry. And if if that's how you want to think of it, well, God bless you. You know, I mean, um, the question is not so much was the snake literal, but what's going on here psychologically? What happens when the the woman in the narrative, Eve, Here's a voice say, did God say you shouldn't eat? And the first thing Eve does is say, yeah, he, he said that. He said we shouldn't eat it or touch it. Now, she adds a prohibition where there was no prohibition not to touch it. Now, she adds a prohibition, right? You can already tell that desire has been deformed, right? Hmm. And so she will violate her own law. The pro, Don't touch it. I touched it. Nothing happened. Therefore, I'll eat it. Crunch. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's when the male in the story, Adam, comes along and imitates that activity that there is this thing called the fall. It is this imitation of that action in which the the male is now in a rivalry with the God. Nothing happened to Eve, so nothing will happen to him. And But when he bites, they, there's this awareness that hits them both, this consciousness, this reality that everything has now changed. 
Instead of imitating God, they have learned to imitate each other. Oh, wow. Now, this is all evolution is saying. It's from primates to humans where we we evolved through the imitation process. Okay, great. So now we've got imitation, desire, imitation. It moves immediately into um, a narrative of two brothers. And in that narrative, these brothers are offering sacrifices. We have no mention of sacrifice yet. None at all. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you mm-hmm. got two brothers, one offering grain, one offering me, right? And there's a battle between the two of them, Cain and Abel. One of the fun things is the rabbis, when they um, were, or the or proto-rabbis, the early Targumists were uh, cr- uh, creating the Aramaic Targum around these texts, they turned Abel into a Pharisee and Cain into a Sadducee. <laughs> and they, the, the question they debated was whether God ruled by justice or mercy. And Cain argued by justice and Abel argued by, uh, I'm sorry, Cain argued by mercy and God by justice. But when God didn't show justice to Cain, he gets angry. He's the Sadducee, kills the Pharisee, right? And, um, and the Targumists, you know, read themselves into the text that way. Uh, Jesus would have heard it like this in one form or another. But the point is you have a story of twin brothers. And then immediately after the death of Abel, it says, and Cain went out and built a city. Oh, you know, who's he got? He's going to build a city with Walmart and Targets and Applebee's and everything else. It's just him and mom and dad. <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, out of the... Who knows what happened with all the incest that took place. But if the fundamentalists are right, and it's a literal Adam and Eve and a literal Cain and Abel, and they had to go all incestuous for generations in order to populate the planet, I wonder how come we all don't look like we're from Appalachia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they never did figure that piece out, right? In genetics, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, he goes out, he builds a civilization. Next thing you know, Civilization has erupted in violence, first with Lamech and 70 times seven, and then with Noah, three times the earth is full of violence. So there's this cleansing process, and sacrifice gets introduced with Noah. Now, I wonder which species it was that he killed one of the two of that we don't have today. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I think we're to the unicorn, honey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Get the elf. Get the elf. No. Um, um, and then, of course, it moved into the ultimate experience where humans take sacrifice now, which was meant as a temporary outlet, a temporary ritual, and they will turn it into an institution, and they will conquer heaven and claim divinity for sacrifice by building this tower to heaven. They will make sacrifice the heavenly decree. And that's when God comes down and says, no, we're not going to have this kind of religion. And it gets boom. So the Genesis myth really retells, in a sense, the Girardian tale of the founding of human civilization upon tainted desire, rivalry, scapegoating, culture, and religion. 
Wow, that that's awesome. Yeah, because when you were talking about the tower, I was just thinking just this week on Facebook, somebody had posted the question. They said, if God had such a problem with them building a tower, then then how come he doesn't have any problem with the space stations up in the air and in space and everything? And it was a good question because they were making the point that if this is literal, then there's got to be something we're missing yeah, here, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but but that's really interesting how, how you have the, the whole cycle, the whole name. What, what were the pieces? of it that we're all there you, in the- you have desire rivalry or imitation desire imitation rivalry scapegoating sacrifice cable ables the sacrifice to build a civilization upon and religion which attempts to raise itself up to the level of divinity mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Wow, that's there's there's a lot there. I mean, you just just in those first what is it, the first eleven chapters of of Genesis. I mean, you, you've got you've got the whole the whole kit and caboodle right oh, there. Yeah. It's a, it's quite a brilliant. I don't know who the rabbi is that or the two writers are that uh, drafted those early narratives, but. When you compare the early Genesis narratives with other cultural mythologies of their origins, right? Lots of similarities, lots and lots. And so some scholars said, look, the Jews borrowed their creation narrative from Egypt. The Jews borrowed their creation narrative from Mesopotamia. The Jews borrowed their creation narrative from Babylon. Okay, so what? So what? The question is, when the Jews tell the story, how did they tell the story differently than the Egyptians? How did they tell the story differently than the Mesopotamians? How did they, you know? And they did it very differently. And so they're, like I already pointed out, the first chapter is really eschatology. The second chapter is the first time in human literature that the voice of the victim is ever mentioned. It's the only oh, wow. mythology in the world where the voice of the victim gets a place. That's the blood of it. Your brother's blood clays out from the ground. So, I mean, revelation as a category is happening explosive in these texts if you know how to read them. But if you try to turn them into science or history, you'll just spend all of your intellectual time fighting straw men. Why not read them anthropologically in the power of the spirit to see how they can really help us understand what it means to be human and what it means to follow Jesus? Oh yeah, when you read it that way, it's far more powerful than than just trying to turn it into a historical document. Because when I look at it, first of all, um, I find it astounding that all the way back then, the writers had this kind of insight into things like imitation and and culture being built on bloodshed, th- things like that nature. That's just amazing. Like I, I, you know, I work in an industry in television. We get all of our money based on imitation right. that we count on people imitating because you know we make our money off commercials right. and so we're going to show that person being happy as a clam you know driving the car so that you're going to say oh i want that car because i want to be happy like yeah. that guy mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. the whole advertising industry is completely built on that Correct. and and you know we i think of that before learning all this stuff i i think of, i always thought of that as a more recent psychological discovery you know, that, oh, advertisers picked up on all this in-depth stuff on how to touch into human desire and get them to buy things. And, and then you're, you're sitting here going, no, way back in Genesis, it's right there in the garden. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, that's what, this is why I don't understand Christian conservatives who get afraid when you tell them the Bible's not the word of God, because 
they don't realize the Bible is the most powerful book in, in the world. It is full of revelation. If, again, you don't gum it up with religion. But we gum it up with religion every time. Because we, we, you know, the old term the anthropologists used was homo sapiens. We were homo sapiens. We were wise apes, right? Um, that's not really true. We're actually homo religiosus. We are the religious animal. Wow. Well, two things. One, I make a comment, and then I want to ask Michael a question. But um, I've yet to have a conversation with any Christian on any level. They can be, like myself, 50 years in pastoring, or they could be a brand-new Christian. If the question comes up, who was Cain's wife? <laughs> or the question comes up, who were these people that Cain was afraid of that he asked God to put a mark on his on him right. so that they wouldn't mistreat him because of his right. sin? Right. Who were these people he was afraid right. of? And, you know... I've yet to meet the person that could actually give a an honest answer uh, that made sense. Well, there isn't one. I've heard some. I've heard some insane answers, but ninety percent of the time, I see them kind of scratching their head and saying, "Yeah, I have the same question." And, and and so I, I guess what I'm saying is that religion doesn't give us an answer to an anthropological That's question. Right. So my question to you, Michael, is this. You, you made a statement. You said uh, you use the word myth, mm -hmm. and you said my interpretation of myth is different than what most people would mm -hmm. think. Could you give us that interpretation? Sure. So for the, the average layperson, just the average layperson, they might have had a college class in anthropology or sociology or something. Uh, they've learned uh, that myths are human attempts to describe events beyond human control. So early caveman, thunder and lightning, ooh, 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 what, 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 you know, eventually they would, they would, they would think that they had done something wrong, especially if a tree fell on somebody and over thousands of years, they would devise these, this worldview that the gods were mad, right? This is all the while that they're engaged in mimetic scapegoating and sacrificing and they don't even know it. They're just coming into consciousness as, as a species. But they'll, they'll create mythology out of this. So when we look at myth, we basically look at the Oedipus myth, right? And we go, oh, well, you know, Oedipus wasn't real and this and that and the other. And Okay, fine. If we do that, uh, if we do that with any mythology, um, what we're doing is we're negating the myth. Because the myth wants to be read as a myth. It wants to be read as an origin story. Um, but what scientific tool do we use to read myths? Well, we have to have a tool that will allow us to see that 
across the board in origins, myth mythological origins, there are four related phenomena. And those four related phenomena have to do with mimesis and violence and scapegoating and uh, the innocence of the scapegoat, this, that, and the other. And we see that now. But the text that only that revealed that to us is the passion narrative. And that's why René Girard says the gospel is the scientific interpretation of myth. It is the gospel that gives us this ability to see this anthropologically. It is the gospel that observes the close correlation between deception and murder. Uh, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Um, uh, in other words, the, the talking snake and Cain are the same character, as it were, right? Um, so it is, it's the gospels that give us the ability to interpret all myth in a scientific fashion that then allows us to discover the revelation that comes through these texts. So rather than bypass science, we go right through it. We use it. I, I find it, again, another one of those really astounding, profound things I find in that in that Genesis um, story, the Genesis myth, is um, the fact that they, that you, as you pointed out, um, Cain kills Abel, and then he goes and builds a city. And that that, and, and you've pointed out in your work before that, that you have a similar myth with Rome, mm-hmm. where, Re, what is it, Remus and Romulus? Um, the same, same thing. Go, uh, one, yep. one kills the other, but goes and builds a city. Yep. And and as you look at every society in the earth today, whether you take the United States of America, England, Uganda, Japan, whatever, they're all founded on bloodshed. Yep. It's, I, I find that astounding. I, I, it's, it's, I look at it all the way back in Genesis. They figured this out, something we haven't even figured out, that you look at all our modern society, you know, whatever it is, somebody killed somebody to establish the, the, the society that we live in. Yeah. And, and then, but then you can even go further and go, and then you look at the kingdom of God where Jesus allowed his own blood to be shed to establish the kingdom of God. There you go. So again, all of that just from that Genesis narrative, the first 11, 11 chapters in the Bible, what unpacks from that is mind-blowing. But again, I think we get caught, and I know most of my life, I was caught in the tall weeds of fighting over whether this is real or if it's not, and you know if it's literal. And you know, I was, of course, on the side of fighting for it being literal, and, and th- that we couldn't see the forest because of all the trees. Right. So can we take a... Um little bit of a side road on this now how does the person uh evangelical or otherwise the person who has always been taught all of their life that every word in the bible we've already dealt with this in previous podcasts but you know was scripted by god mm-hmm. You know, they were told word for word what to write. So on. and 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 now we're using a word that is an affront to that type of of mindset. We're using the word myth, the Genesis myth. Um, is there a way to help them without violating their own conscience, if you will, 
to begin to look at a different narrative. Well, that would take the work of the Holy Spirit. It always does. Um, mm -hmm. People that are locked into a religious reading uh, are normally locked into that kind of reading for superstitious reasons. Um, and they've been told if they violate this reading or this interpretation, they're going to burn in hell. That's what they've been told. And so the church... There's, there's another offensive word, Michael. Oh. Superstitious in oh, hell. Right, right. <laughs> Um, here's what I do know. What I do know is that uh, people only change their theology when their life comes crashing down and God doesn't intervene. Okay? Then they change okay. their theology. They either they give it up, mm -hmm. they give it up, they deconstruct, whatever they got to do. But God didn't do the, this thing that they wanted God to do and God does it for others and why didn't God do it for me and blah, 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 blah. Okay. That's, a, that's the only time you can come in with a pastoral heart and say, hey, look, the Father's not who you think, and and let me let me show you the Father in Jesus by the Spirit, and will and help revive that that trust. Okay, um, but to the to the average layperson, what I would say is, if you want to continue your religious reading of the text, you'll never end up where the gospel ends up, and you'll never be able to see Christ as the new creation. Even though religiously they believe that they already do see oh, that. Oh, they, oh, yeah, I believe that. I believe all the, that. The yeah. thing is, is that when people are blind and they think they see, they're in the worst possible outcome. Okay? And Jesus talked about religious leadership. And so I'm going to address every pastor out there, every elder, every deacon, anybody that's in a leadership position in the church. How do you know that you are not the blind leading the blind? How do you know? Jesus said, it's the only statement he ever made about hermeneutics. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, if the light in, in, of your mind is, is bright, then blessed are you. But if you think the light in you is light and it's really darkness, you're screwed. So I would say to every single Christian out there, what you need to do is you need to ask yourself one simple question. Have I placed my faith in God truly to where no matter what happens, the world could explode around me and I would still trust the Father? Or have I placed my faith in the theology I'm taught? Because if you place your faith in your theology, you will die on that mountain when that God who doesn't exist doesn't reply. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true. It, it goes it, it goes back to the question, like people would say, you know, you look even through history, how the the battles over, you know, even like with Galileo, you know, is the Earth the center of the universe, and that was a threat to their faith that if the Earth is the center of the universe, their whole theology falls apart. And now we just widely accept it, you know. And and I've heard people say similar thing. What if suddenly alternate a life from another planet landed on Earth? Would your faith crumble? You know, would would Christianity be out the window? You know, questions like that, and. Uh, and and it, it's it's a really good point you make, Michael. That it's like where where is your faith? Is it genuinely in our heavenly Father, or is it in some construct that we've created? That if that crumbles down, then your faith is gone. Right. And and I think it I, I think it uh, bears stating here we're talking about the Father of Lights, in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Amen. He is not a two-faced God. He is not 
yin and yang. He is not, you know, he he is love mm-hmm. at all times, and he is the description of love, not our man-made idea of what love being loving is. And and we want him we want him because it gives us an excuse. We want him to be two-faced. We want him to be loving to us and punitive to our Those we don't like. Those we don't like. Yeah, but but he better be loving to us. Oh, amen. Amen, because we believe. So so much, uh, you know, the statement you made, I've seen it happen. Mm. I've seen people who have pastored for years and years and years and then let something happen to a family member and they're cursing God. I've done all this stuff for you and you haven't done one damn thing for me. And it's like, okay. So in other words, what you're saying is you want God to be your employee Mm -hmm. And you paid his paycheck, and you ask him to do something, and he says, "No, I don't want to do that." And you're like, "I paid you. It's like you you owe me. It's yeah." And it, it's like I I just find it very interesting that well that it's like did I even did I even know God? Well, that's that's a that's a real question. You see, the the gospel runs on grace. Religion runs on the principle in Latin, it's do ut des, and it simply means I give in order to receive. That's the functional privilege uh, principle of all religion. You give to the gods in order to get something from the gods. So if they're, they're, you feed them a little bit with your offerings and sacrifices, and you get these blessings. Mm-hmm. The religious person lives in that world of I'm giving to God so I can get from God. The follower of Jesus recognizes that the Father is only giving and life-giving at that, and that (laughs) circumstances are not a barometer of love. It's just life. We're all passing through this world. Some shit happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's valleys. Sometimes we're crossing deserts. Sometimes we're climbing mountains. It's life. That's life. And Christians are, they're, they're, they're a bunch of snowflakes. <laughs> I'm suffering. I, I, I find it interesting that let's go, let's go back to that first group of uh, group of guys that hung out with mm. Jesus. It's like, you know, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly in this world, you'll suffer persecution. Mm-hmm. They're going to take you in places that you would not rather go. Yeah, you know, right. it's like you're you're all going to die for me. That's it's right. like, oh, what about the life and life more abundantly? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like I like that part of the message. Jesus, you know? Can we, can we like, stop at John chapter eleven? Do we really have to go to chapter twelve? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and as I, 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 we we don't we don't get it. I, I think about something you were saying earlier. I started thinking about the um, the parables. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Now, when I was a kid, I had a Sunday school teacher that uh, apparently she never really read the Bible. 
<laughs> because <laughs> her answer of why Jesus spoke in parables was because these were poor people that couldn't read, and, you know, they were farmers. And so he, he would break down the lessons of the kingdom uh, on a language that they could understand. And so he talked about farming and things like that so that they would understand what he was talking about. <laughs> so I go to Scripture, and the disciples at one point in time, they said, why do you, why do you speak in parables? And he had quite a different answer. Yeah. And his his answer is so that seeing they won't perceive and hearing they won't understand. That's why I talk to them in parables. I don't want them to get it intellectually. Right. I want them to dig in. I want them to understand that I'm talking about life-changing principles. I'm talking about kingdom principles. I'm not talking about farming. I'm not talking about a pearl hidden in, you know, in a real estate investment. And, you know, I'm talking about something completely different. And I think that's, I think humanity is still in the same place. We, we can do our, through the Bible in a year, year after year after year after year, and see and not perceive, hear and not understand, lest we hear and repent okay, right. and turn. And, and I think, at least I hope, that we are in a place there are enough people that are starting to write books and uh, podcasts like this and others that are beginning to speak to these issues that I hope that there are people that are beginning to see and hear and turn. I, I think there are. I mean, it, it is kind of, you know, you have to trust that the Spirit is doing this, the same work the Spirit has always been doing. Since she came, you right. know. So I, I would say yes. I, it's again. We're. I think we were talking about this last week. We're in this place right now. Of we've just been through the hurricane, and it's. We can see everything. It's destroyed, and we're, we're just getting ready for the further destruction. You know, it's it's funny. You were just bringing up that passage, Jim, about um, why Jesus, how he was saying why he taught in parables. Because I was just reading that yesterday, and and I, I want to talk about this here because this is great. I have two people who can we can you can answer my question. <laughs> um, I, when I was reading that yesterday, I thought, you know, that's kind of odd because it's like it said Jesus said I, I teach in parables, you know, lest they see and they repent. And I thought, well, don't you want them to see and repent? I mean. So, so help me out well, here. First of all, parables aren't stories; they're not fables. They're at, in in their simplest terms, they're analogs or anti-analogs. In other words, they're comparing something or they're contrasting something, and they use familiar language, and they pair it with the unfamiliar. So you have familiar paired with unfamiliar. Now you've created a metaphor, which can expand into a symbol, 
and thus a parable. Parables are not meant to comfort. They're not meant to instruct. There's no doctrine in parables. Parables are splinters in the brain. You're meant to walk away from a parable of Jesus hurting. It's troublesome. There's something that bothers you, that gnaws at you. There's something that doesn't make sense, you know, um, that's the function of a parable or a parable, okay. you know, like the parable of the tenants. Jesus just tells the simple story of a guy that, you know, sends his, his, uh, agents out to do the vineyard and they, they get rid of him and they kill the son and, and Jesus, you know, turns and he says, what, what do you think the, the landowner is going to do? Oh, we know what he's there. He's going to go after him and kill him. And Jesus says, guess what? The stone you rejected has become a corner. He quotes Psalm 118 to them, which is a very important psalm in Jewish liturgical history. And bada-boom, bada-bing. They see them. They're caught now. They are caught in a trap. And that's another thing a parable does. It's not just a mind splinter. It catches you in its trap. Wow. Okay. So the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. Makes no sense. None. Because the kingdom of God yeah. is big, it's visual, it's spacious, it's huge, and you know, um, and, and it's so it it's bringing things together that are meant to cause people to go, I don't, I don't get this, I don't get this. Okay, that that helps because it's like when I'm so. In other words, when I'm reading, because he even said that right after the um, he told the parable of the the wheat and the uh, not the wheat and the tares, the um, the sower in the uh-huh. field, and it's like, of course, I'm reading that parable, and you know. I'm like you said, it's a splinter in the brain. I'm I'm bothered about. Uh, I have some shallow soil in me. Uh, I I I got some weeds of worry and anxiety and you know things that kind of choke this thing and, and love for riches to kind of choke this seed out. So it's meant to do that, it, and it's it's meant to disturb. Um, and it's not a thing of like get fixed. It's a thing of it's meant to kind of. I guess, shake you up a little bit. Well, since we started this talking about genres in terms of myth and history and these kinds of things, and then we're ending on parables, um, it, it's sometimes in parables where the God, and it's the gospel writers that add this, the kingdom of God can be compared to, okay? It wasn't, Jesus didn't say that all the time. He may have said it sometimes, and Sometimes it makes it, but a lot of times you get the kingdom of God can be compared to when it, it's, it's not making a comparison. It's making a contrast. So kingdom of God, that's why I say the kingdom of God can be sort of likened. And I say sort of likened to a king. Now that sort of in there means only part of it's going to fit that there's something this king does in this parable that the father doesn't do, right? Right, okay. So, you know, I mean, it, it just becomes important to let texts be texts. We don't have to cut anything out of the Bible. We're not explaining anything away. In fact, we're revealing the truth of what's right there, things hidden before the foundation of the world, things hidden from the wise and understanding and revealed to children. Children know how to trust, man, until that gets violated. Yeah. Children know know, know how to, to uh, we are not little children when it comes to the father. We're all grown up intellectuals yeah. when we go to church. We got the right doctrine. 
but we so so how come and I, of course I'm, I'm setting you up here how come jesus didn't just tell it plainly you know why did he put in a parable why didn't he just go it's this and that and this and that so the reason for the parable is that when a person is locked into a religious mentality their view of god is that god is two-faced if your message is god is love and god is light and doesn't have a second face how can you possibly break in? Because up until this point, all gods are two-faced, right? So if you have a god that is not two-faced, how are you gonna how are you gonna communicate that? Right? Well, but the only way that it can get communicated is if you show that and you die and let the Father raise you and announce peace and shalom. And then for the first time now we have a God that can really, the real God, the true God, the God that can raise the dead, bring life from death, light from darkness. This God, it, yes, this is the real true God. We can then go back and interpret, you know, the two-faced God concept and realize that's not the Father. Okay. You know, I've, I've talked about this before many times in regard yeah. to Marcion and things. But if you want to know how much trouble the so-called people, they believe the Bible's the word of God, right? It's the literal word of God. When they can't figure it out literally, they go straight to allegory. Right. I'll I'll spiritualize the text. I I don't want to talk about God fighting all these battles in the book of Joshua and killing the Amalekites. So we're going to turn Joshua into a book about spiritual warfare. Uh (laughs) Okay. It's like, Uh yeah, I want those drugs. (laughs) <laughs> that's good so so basically the parables are because jesus is sharing something that they're not going to be able to grasp even if they do until after his resurrection well, that's exactly right and even then even then look at that they didn't grasp it i mean if you know if there's any historical uh-huh. credence to the 40 days after the resurrection jesus is teaching them at the end of that 40 days the guys said there's a kingdom coming Israel, is it still here? Do we get to be dispensationalists? Are you going to do your second coming now, Jesus? You know, I mean, it's what they, you know, so they still didn't get it. And they didn't, the Jerusalem church never got it. You know, these are people that live with Jesus. And if they didn't get it, we had better put ourselves on their side. And we'd better be humble enough and honest enough to say, maybe we don't get it. Maybe Michael doesn't get it. Maybe Michael doesn't see correctly. And as long as I keep that in my head, I recognize I'm not believing in my theology, and I could be wrong. Uh, I also know that, uh, as Bernie Ram, my old systematics professor, put it, God has to forgive our theology just like he forgives our sins. Yeah, it's it's really that's good. It's really humbling when you when you realize that it's like I mean because you got to camp there a second and go wait a minute when you said the people who were walking with Jesus we're we're not talking just some church members who didn't get it we're talking the people who were actually eating with him drinking with him saw him die saw him rose again and they didn't get it. Right. That's very humbling to realize it's like, what, what makes me have the audacity to think, well, I got that's, it. That's right. And it's so important that we, we uh, maybe this is the Jesus influence on me. Maybe it's the pietism from my seminary days. Maybe it's my 
love of, of medieval monasticism. I don't know. The Devotio Moderna. I don't know. Maybe it's the Anabaptist influence. But this thing that we call gospel is a lived reality. And so if, if you know, you're reading your Genesis text literally and you're loving your neighbor and you're caring for the, for the disadvantaged around you, if you're loving the unlovely, I don't care how you read the text. <laughs> Is it by your fruits you know them, not by their hermeneutics? Exactly. I think that's an, an, an extremely important statement to make. Um, I, I, I think sometimes uh, in Christian circles, uh, we always strive to get it right. And in the striving to get it right, we get it wrong most of the time, yeah. you know. And 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 the arguments that go between people is each person believing that they have it right and the other one is wrong, and therefore I have to convince my friend here that <laughs> that they're wrong and I'm right, and and we 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 just get in these insane arguments. I would. You know, get, getting back to the parables and, and the, you know, the one that you, you spoke about, Michael, you know, what do you think they will do to the sun? And they said, I'll tell you what we're going to do to them. <laughs> they knew they were talking about yeah. themselves. Okay. Uh, but it wasn't until the power of the cross that they really had the ability to see it and, and repent if they chose to, and some mm -hmm. did. But I, I was thinking about the other parable, Lauren, that we, we had mentioned when uh, it was right after that when the disciples asked him, why do you? And I, I saw this one day. You know, you know, there's a statement, there is none so blind as he who will not mm -hmm. see. You know? And, and I saw this one day because... Having been raised in an evangelical uh, church, that everything is about getting sinners saved, you know, uh, that's that parable of the four types of soil, you know, was all always about the condition of the hearer's heart, you know. So I'm out there and I'm I'm passing out four spiritual laws or chick tracks or whatever I'm using for the day. And I'm trying to get sinners saved, you know, more notches on my belt. And, you know, and, and, and I'm told that I'm going to run into uh, basically four different kinds of people. I'm going to run into the person that's, you know, the, the wayside, you know, hard ground and thorny ground and rocky ground and then i'm gonna run into some people that you know the soil's been prepared and and it's going to bear in them 30 60 100 fold fruit you know and every time i read that parable every time i read it that's exactly how i interpret it because that's what i was told this is how you interpret this and one day I'm reading it, and something jumped out at me that I never saw before. And it has to do with the first 
and the last soil, if you will. And Jesus in his interpretation said, and this is the seed that fell on the the wayside, by the wayside, that the birds came and so on and so forth and ate it. He said, it's the one who hears but does not understand. And then he says, and this is the seed that fell on good soil, is the one that hears and understands. And I was like, there's something in that parable that I've never understood, <laughs> that this is something about understanding. <laughs> You know, <laughs> this is not about getting people saved. This is not about four different heart, you know, conditions. This is about my ability to understand or not understand, to hear and understand or hear and not understand. And, and I was like, ever since then, I've like, well... It's, it, you know, and this is not a schmoozing or a buttering up, but it's it's why I enjoy listening to Michael and why I started reading books and listening to podcasts outside of my sphere of influence, if you will, because I want to understand. I want to understand stuff that I never understood before because I don't want 30, 60, and 100-fold fruit in I got more people saved than you got saved. I want fruit in my life of representing the gospel and representing the life of a person who is a true Jesus follower. And so I, I, I find myself in a place where... I, I'm 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 back in school and I'm enjoying it. Let's put it that way, because I want to understand. Yeah, that's that's really good, and and I I love how it ties into you know the whole thing. Um, the big thing that teachers in public education their their big thing is to be a lifelong learner. You know, that's the thing they try and teach students mm-hmm. to be, and the thing they try they're supposed to be. And and I, I love that that's what you're hitting on, Jim. Is followers of Christ, we're supposed to stay lifelong learners. We're not supposed to be, I've got this nailed down. This is signed, sealed, delivered, done. Okay, it's on the shelf now because I got it. It's, no, there could still be something I don't get. There could still be something I don't see. One would hope. There could be. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Wow. All right, guys. Well, this this has been a great conversation again. Um Really good one. Uh, Jim, where can people find your book? I said it last week and I'll say it again. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know. It's like we could just cut that part out and replay it at the end. <laughs> replay it at the end <laughs> on Amazon.com. <laughs> you should start just making up locations, you know, Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Michael, guess what I'm going to ask you? 
Yeah, the answer is that any good fundamentalist book burning. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you will not find it in your most Christian bookstores, yeah. but you can find it in, I'll answer it for you, you can find it on Amazon, and you can find his videos on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in, and we'll talk to you all again next time. Cheers.